And uh, it is my uh, great delight to welcome Drayton Neighbors uh, here. Uh, many of you know uh, Drayton, married to Fairfax, three children, and uh, uh, is currently your of counsel at Maynard Cooper, right? Uh, and uh, before that, he uh, served uh, as um, uh, head of protective life for a number of years, and of course, at one point, was the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. And uh, the job that I would love to have, the director of finance for the state of Alabama, you are in charge of distributing the federal stimulus funds uh, for uh, for Governor Riley. In uh, a way. In a way. In, in yes. a way. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so you did that. Um, so, spending other people's money. That's great. So, well, it's great to have Drayton here, and we're going to be talking about, uh, and especially I think it works well in light of what we talked about last week with Bishop Allison here, uh, uh, what does it look like to be a Christian in, in the public square? Uh, what does our involvement look like, uh, and what is the calling that God has on our lives? And so I'm particularly grateful that uh, Drayton is with us uh, this morning. Uh, I hope it looks a whole lot better than I look in the public square. Yeah, yeah well... <laughs> Let us pray. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and for uh, the ministry of Drayton Neighbors uh, among us and, uh, uh, and beyond, uh, Lord, for his uh, faith in you. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would continue to use him and us uh, to take uh, your word to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, I, uh, a couple, uh, well, gosh, it was a couple years ago now, uh, I was at a meeting, and I was sat next to Drayton Neighbors, uh, and uh, he leaned over, and he said, I have a wonderful plan for your life, and, uh, and, uh, and that plan was Sam Mugisha, who many of you uh, remember was here uh, with us for a little over a year, uh, and is now go on, going on to be uh, a bishop in the church in uh, Rwanda, and so uh, Drayton uh, is the one that was responsible for for initiating that and, and making that happen. And uh, since then, it's been a little bit of a snowball uh, effect. Uh, it's, uh, there was a poster we had in our house growing up that had this beautiful sort of snowy mountainside, but you could see that this avalanche was starting. And underneath of it, it said, uh, teamwork. It's amazing how uh, a few flakes can cause such an avalanche of destruction. Uh, and, uh, and so since then, since then, we've, we've caused uh, an, an avalanche. But, but you, uh, you certainly are in uh, the, the public square uh, by virtue of the positions that you've served, uh, and, uh, and you've also been very involved uh, in Christian ministry, uh, not just uh, in, in Rwanda, but even closer to home with things like Cornerstone uh, Schools. And so one of the things that we're dealing with right now in our world, and it may be a little bit easier in Birmingham to do this, uh, but what is the role of a Christian uh, in the public square, especially when the rest of the world is saying, you're not welcome? Well, first and foremost, our role is to serve God and bring Him glory, and we can do that however we are in the public square. Exactly what that means, I'm not sure, but, uh, but it relates to family, it relates to work, it relates to community, and we're all doing one or several or many things in those various arenas and God has put us there to do his work in redeeming the world much mm -hmm. as the sermon said today and do, in a, do it in a way that will bring him glory. Mm -hmm. Do you have, do you have, can you all hear him in the back? I think it's a I week. I can yell louder. 
Uh, or if you just want to hold that one, uh, sorry to make you work so hard. But, um, so with, with that, you know, there, there's a way that Christians being involved in the world uh, whether that's through through mission or or, or anything, just just being a Christian wherever God has planted you, uh, but there's a way that that sometimes Christians can behave that is profoundly unhelpful, uh, and there's a way to do it that is very helpful. So there's a book out that that I can encourage you to read called When Helping Hurts, uh, and it's written by some Christian missionaries that talk about how uh, oftentimes certain missions, short-term missions and other things can actually create a mismanaged expectation and in the long run can actually do some damage. Uh, But I'm actually thinking of it in a little bit bigger way of just uh, Christians uh, thinking they're doing God's work but uh, just hurting us. But rather than when helping hurts, how do we as Christians help in a way that is helpful? Well... If we're talking about helping other people and if we're talking about more than just generosity and so often with Americans, what we have is money, especially with respect to our relationship to the poor, so we want to give the poor money. And the questions that Andrew is asking me is, does that always help? And it doesn't always help because we're not empowering those people to be all that they can be. but. We're giving them a crutch, so to speak. So how do we as Christians look at other people and do those things that will uh, remove or relieve those people from, from slavery, from bondage, whether it be poverty or uh, alcohol or whatever it might be, so they can be all that they can be for God. And we just got to work on that. Uh, Cornerstone is an obvious example in so far as what I do. Um, Cornerstone is a school for four-year-olds through seniors in high school. It's a Christian school, inner city school. 90%, 90% plus of the students there are poor. 95, 99% of them are African American, all of whom would otherwise be in the Birmingham public schools, which have all kinds of challenges, as you know. And so we try to look at each of those children and give them not only a good education, but also um, draw them to a faith in Jesus Christ and also try to build in them a character that will allow them to flourish in this world when they get out of school. And we think that when you concentrate on a person in that way, you're likely um, to serve God in a very powerful way. Yeah, how do you do Let's talk about politics for a minute. Uh, just kidding, we won't. Uh, uh, but, you know, that, um, you know, what's the little catch catchphrase, the tagline for Cornerstone Schools, your, your purpose statement? Empowering students to glorify God. Empowering students to glorify God. Uh, so your involvement there is not just a material involvement, although it is, it's actually seeing people's lives changed uh, by Jesus Christ and empowered by the Spirit to go out and serve God in the world. And what are some of the the challenges that that you face and you encounter, especially in a world that is so dead set on individual prerogatives and freedom and to do what's best for me, to instill and encourage them to have the character to understand that your purpose is bigger than just you? 
Uh, it's not just your commitment to God, but His call on your life uh, to minister to your community. Yeah, well, when you're dealing with youngsters, as we're dealing with at Cornerstone, um, first of all, we just want them to look to God as a sovereign God, someone who is to guide their, life, their lives and give them the strength and the wisdom um, to do well in the world. Uh, we want to give them a good education. And most of all, what you have, and we see this with, with people that are impoverished, whether it be in the United States uh, or in Africa, um, in Rwanda, give them uh, the sort of confidence, I'll even call it self-confidence, but confidence in themselves through a Christ-like character and through a Christ-like understanding so that when they get out of school, whatever that might be in Africa, it's very little, but get out of Cornerstone, they will be able to stand on their feet uh, and accomplish significant things, however God has called them to be. We can't all be NFL quarterbacks. We can't all be uh, MIT physicists, uh, but we can all be very... Uh, successful for God and what He has called us to do. Mm-hmm. Now, the, um, you're fairly well educated, uh, I understand, <laughs> and, um, uh, and uh, you, you did your undergraduate at, at Princeton, you were a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, no, you weren't. No, my son uh, your was. Your son was. Right. Yeah, well, good genes. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and yet, the, does there seem to be... Uh, there just seems to me, I should say, to be such tremendous pressure on children today to be the MIT physics whiz and the NFL quarterback. Uh, and uh, how, how does Cornerstone approach, approach that? Of definitely wanting them to, to aim high, but uh, also to understand what's really important uh, in life. Yeah, that's, that's very hard um, to teach. Um, and of course, we all want our children to be NFL quarterbacks if they are athletes or MIT physicists or whatever. Um, they don't necessarily want to be NFL quarterbacks. Uh, that's something that us, we in our own ego, try to impose on them. I was a tennis player. My son was a tennis player. I put way too much pressure on him with respect to tennis than was healthy uh, for him. Uh, at Cornerstone, well, the, the best thing we can all do at Cornerstone or in our families or in our communities is to be good examples um, for the children. Be a, a good example for our children and for the children that we come in contact with, whether it be a teacher with children in the school or coaching in uh, athletics or whatnot. They follow examples um, so much more than they follow words. Uh, we all do. Uh, if we can look at those people that have most made an impression on us in a positive way, it has been the example those people have given us rather than whatever words of wisdom they may have given us. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the college acceptance rate coming out of Cornerstone? 100%. 100%. Yeah, so that's, that's a remarkable testimony. I mean, we could talk about it till they're blue in the <laughs> face, but, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating that... Uh, that you've got these uh, young people going off to, to college. And uh, how, does, how does that compare to ministry uh, abroad? You know, you've been very active in Shira Diocese in Rwanda. 
which we now have a partnership with. And one of the things I noticed when we were over there last is how they're able to do so much with so little. Yeah, that, that really gets back to the, um, to the previous question. What makes us happy in life? Um, uh, what gives us a sense of joy and peace? It isn't being in the NFL. Uh, it really isn't. I don't know if we, what would happen if we gave them some sort of psychiatric examination, but I bet they're not all happy. <laughs> Nor are the students or professors at MIT uh, all that happy. Many of the people in Rwanda that are growing up in truly abject poverty, uh, they are a family of eight living on a half acre of land and have never seen any currency at all. They have a little corn, a little coffee or whatever they're raising and they're quite happy. Um, um, and so what can give us happiness is a sense of satisfaction in the circumstances that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the statistics in the United States of uh, the most generous income bracket uh, in the United States of giving to nonprofits and charities uh, and churches it, are those people that we would call poor. That that percentage-wise, they give more than any other, you know, middle class, upper class, uh, than than anybody. And that there does seem to be uh, an understanding of. Um, you know, when, when all you have is Jesus, especially over in Rwanda, uh, that means everything. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. The, right. the, the poor can understand that better perhaps than we can, but you find poor people that attend church regularly, they're tithers. I mean, that's, that's just natural to them, um, uh, not necessarily um, those that are more affluent. Right. And your involvement over there, uh, what are you most excited about uh, what's going on in Rwanda? Oh, there's so much to be excited about in Rwanda. Um, It's a little teeny peanut of a country in East Africa. It is landlocked. Uh, I read a book about 10 years ago uh, called The Bottom Billion, and it is about those nations that are landlocked, uh, have no access to natural resources. Uh, Rwanda doesn't have any natural resources. Uh, And how the people living in those countries are just going to be poor forever. Uh, Little did that book know that Rwanda might come around. Rwanda has a very sound government and the beginning of a rule of law and a government that is is, uh, committed to driving out corruption. As a result, Western capital is pouring into that country uh, and it's very exciting to see that country uh, growing uh, through the investment that is being made in that country from the West. Now, the diocese that this church uh, is associated with, the Shira Diocese, uh, the spiritual vitality of those people is exciting, and it's the reason I go back and back and back uh, to Rwanda. Uh, I don't go to Kigali, the big capital city, um, where they have an enormous university and uh, it's the financial capital really now of East Africa. I go to the Shira Diocese because those people in the, in the fullest sense of this word, word are on fire for God. And just to be around them uh, is, is exhilarating, is exciting. Um, and um, uh, Fairfax has yet to accept the invitation, but I've got a little piece of land. 
of Rwanda. I want to retire to a little hill in Rwanda. <laughs> um, um, uh, but we, it's really a beautiful country. It's it, a gorgeous, but the people are so beautiful, and um, uh, they're they are so in love um, with Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll give you this one example, I, um, um, not to suggest that the Advent wants to do it, but there's a church in Memphis that had a, a group of youngsters, Sunday school, uh, uh, what do you call it, in the summer? Uh, vacation Bible vacation School. Vacation Bible School. They took about 12 youngsters over there, let's say ages 8 to 12, and told um, the diocese, oh, we're going to come over and would like to see some of your youngsters. The word went out that some youngsters from Memphis would come here, come join them for a little uh, vacation Bible study on Thursday. 4,000 youngsters showed up. That's more friends than I have on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 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 the good dean was on the way to the airport, and it was announced that the bishop was going to show up and this little rural church up on top of a hill, one electric wire going into the whole village. The bishop was going to show up. He had to get to his flight line, too. In a couple of hours, we were going to pay a five-minute visit. There were 800,000 people there to see the bishop. Uh, so exciting was that. I'm sure they were there to see you, too, Dean. I'm sure. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, and just to see the spiritual further of those people, is very exciting. Also, great strides are being made in education. I could go on and on and on, but there is so much exciting about Rwanda that uh, you might not see in now, Birmingham. Now, how does that happen? I mean, especially of all places, you know, Rwanda is still a part of our collective memory, especially of what happened uh, in the 1994 genocide, which uh, really doesn't seem like that long ago, and yet the transformation that has taken place in that country and the reconciliation, uh, what accounts for that? Well, leadership, certainly. Um, Kagame, who is the president of the country, first, um, he, he uh, led a group of troops uh, that had been exiled back into Rwanda and, and uh, quelled uh, the genocide and became a military dictator for two or three years. They adopted a constitution. He's since been elected twice uh, as president under that constitution, uh, he, is, he, he is devoted to unity within the country. There are two groups. They're not really tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis. He's a Tutsi. Uh, Tutsi is about 20% of the population. They were the victims um, of the genocide. Uh, in his cabinet, 80% of the people in the cabinet are Hutus, the other group. He wants them to be fully included um, in his government. Um, and the parliament that is elected um, is committed to driving out corruption. And then the purpose, uh, driving purpose of the government in Rwanda and really the people in Rwanda is to come, again, to come together again and do something that is great, um, not necessarily at the government um, uh, level. I'm not sure they're committed to do something that is great for God, although they are a religious people. Uh, and the company is mobilized, the country is mobilized on showing that a country that was once divided in killing one another can unify uh, and come together and create a great nation. Uh, I think Rwanda will be sort of like the Switzerland is of Europe. They will be the Switzerland of East Africa. Yeah. The, um, 
for those of you that don't know, it was they killed a million people in a hundred days. With uh, machetes, with no machetes, guns. Yeah. Uh, and uh, men, women, and children, and they destroyed 80% of the Tutsi population, completely wiped them out. And uh, there are reminders of it everywhere because of the terrible death toll. There are monuments that remind you, uh, but it, it does feel recent. I mean, when we were walking by the technical college in um, Shira Diocese, which is a wonderful ministry, and uh, they've just started putting, they put in a volleyball court, like a sand volleyball court, and they had plowed up the ground. And as I was walking across the volleyball court, I looked around, and there were bones. And they said, yeah, this was a killing field. This is where, and, and we just haven't gotten around to removing uh, the remains. And so uh, living with that over you in uh, the great fear and understanding human nature that, uh, that yes, it, it can happen again, uh, but not just having a good government to, to stand in the way of that, but, but the strength of the church uh, and, and their witness uh, to the life-changing power of, of the gospel that you've seen reconciliation within the church and they themselves being a, a tremendous agent for change in Rwanda. Certainly that is the case. The, at the Shira Diocese, there are nine uh, Anglican dioceses um, uh, in Rwanda. The Catholic Church is the largest church there. Um, uh, Rwanda was a Belgian colony, and so the Catholic in influence is significant. But the largest uh, church in northwest Rwanda is the Shira Diocese, uh, and there's no doubt um, that the gospel message is the driving, unifying force uh, in, the, in mm -hmm. that area of the country, which is, uh, I don't know, uh, about the size of the Birmingham metropolitan area, mm -hmm. though it's a very rural uh, part of the country. Yeah. Well, Drayton, if, if you would, uh, how did you come to faith in the Lord Jesus? Heaven forbid. <laughs> no, no, I shouldn't have said that because it was heaven did it. Um, 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 uh, I didn't expect the question. Um, um, it, it was it's interesting, and um, um, I sort of grew up in the Independent Presbyterian Church here in, in Birmingham, and um, but at Princeton and then later at law school sort of uh, discarded the faith so that when I came back to Birmingham with my wife Fairfax in 1967, I essentially didn't attend church. Um, I certainly had no faith in the sense of the word that you've asked the question. And if you can believe it, um, I really dislike Richard Nixon. Now, how does that bring you to faith, for <laughs> heaven's sakes? <laughs> so I should say that my mother's prayer, prayers brought me to faith, but she was no longer alive. Um, and I was at Ollie's Barbecue. This is older. Some of you can remember Ollie's Barbecue. And I went to... Um, to pay my bill um, one lunch out there. And Ollie kept all these tracks um, at the cash register. And Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, was one of the books. Uh, and I said, I got to read it because it's more about Watergate. I love it, Watergate, because that was the downfall of Richard Nixon. This would be another book to read. And quite literally, Andrew, as I read that book um, on the sofa and read of Chuck Colson's praying to receive Christ as his Savior, I said, oh, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing, but whatever you did to Colson, do it to me. Mm. <laughs> so that's how I came to the faith, yeah. quite literally. Yeah. And I, I need to say this to um, Anglicans. Three weeks later, um, 
Our daughter, Sissy, was baptized, our youngest child. And, of course, the parents answered the baptismal questions in that service and the three affirmative questions. I answered for Sissy, um, but also was quite aware I was answering for myself. Mm -hmm. And I got to give you those questions because they are so pivotal in all of our lives. Um, And that is, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior? Yes for Sissy, yes for me. Do you promise to obey him as your Lord? Yes. Do you promise to put your entire faith in his grace and love? Yes. So that was three weeks later, and I really think that, in a sense, I was baptized as well as Sissy on that day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, you've got a connection to Deborah Layton's father was for years the rector at St. Paul's in Darien, Connecticut, and your connection to Terry Fulham, who uh, was uh, an infamous, uh, but in a good way, uh, rector uh, of that church. And how did, how did that, you know, sort of the charismatic renewal or life in the Spirit, uh, how did God begin to work on you where you said, you know what, I, I'm going to engage in my community. I'm really going to, um, to sink in. I know that you went for, for a time out to church um, down in Fairfield, uh, and, and elsewhere, and you, you tend, God tends to push you toward uh, really hard work. Okay, so uh, I, I really did. Uh, the, the transformation was rather profound in my heart, so I was just passionate um, to serve Christ. And I then believed, as so many Catholics still do today, that you could do it better if you were a priest than if you were working. Um, for heaven's sakes, I was a lawyer at that point. I knew I could do it better as a priest than as a lawyer. I'm sure there's some lawyers in this group. I'm sorry I said that. But in any event, um, so I said, uh, we got to go to seminary. Well, that didn't go over too well with Fairfax. Um, and uh, the truth of the matter, about that time, I transferred to protective, and I had obligations there. And finally, um, it... it I, very seldom do I say the Lord spoke to me, um, but there was a very, very clear message given to me from Jesus Christ, and that is, neighbors, you're an ingrate. I've given you a great job. I've given you a great family, and you want to change it all. Now, bloom where you planted. I mean, quite literally. I mean, you didn't say it like that, but... Uh, but and about that time, I read Forbes magazine... Um, and um, at the, at the last page of Forbes always had some quotations and one scriptural quotation. And about that time, I had Colossians 3.23 uh, was on the back page of Forbes, and it says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart is working for the Lord, not for men. And I said, gracious, that applies to me. I mean, I, and it just became quite aware to me at Protective Life, I was serving Jesus Christ um, whatever I was doing in the community, my work with Cornerstone began about that time. I was doing it for Jesus Christ. So I saw, I began to understand the whole concept of calling and how calling was very real in the world outside of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. So y- your ministry being just as valid, and I would argue more effective, where God placed you rather than in a pulpit. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I know what you're saying, but it's irrelevant mm-hmm. whether it's effective or not. It's God. I mean, right. if, he's, if he's 
If you don't think it's effective and you think it's God, you still do it because he's got a plan and a purpose that we can't understand. So I, I don't measure my effectiveness. I, I think if I did, I wouldn't find much. Uh, so that's a better question not to ask. But I'm pretty sure that I've sought to walk in his ways and have, I hope by his grace I have. Mm -hmm. Now, before we, we open up to questions, um, I wanted you to, to mention uh, the, um, if you're interested, and in, well, obviously if you're interested in Rwanda, uh, you can talk to me, but uh, also I, yeah. Cornerstone School. I, I, I said, Dean, can I talk to this group about what he just asked me about? And then today, uh, I think Lois said, Drayton, you're not there to talk about that. But at Cornerstone, there's, there's a program. If you want to give some scholarships for our children at Cornerstone, those that otherwise would be in Birmingham public schools, I've got a way, uh, the state has a way, where you can do it and it won't cost you a penny. Won't cost you a penny because you get a tax credit for every dollar you give for Cornerstone, uh, for scholarships for Cornerstone children or restoration children or any other uh, private school um, that might be taking poor kids that are transferring from the Birmingham schools. That's all I need to say. Uh, I would love for you to light it up on my email uh, with how I do this. It's DraytonNeighbors at gmail.com. Um, and um, it's a wonderful way to make a gift because it is a gift that is costless. But don't do it. I, I don't want to ask anybody for a penny unless you would want to give to a school like Cornerstone independently of the tax credit you might get. Well, bless you. So... Free money. Who'd ever heard of such a thing? So yeah, it's, 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 it, it, a it, it's not a deduction, it's a credit. It's credit. So you, you give a dollar, you get a dollar back from the state of Alabama. You're really transferring it from um, the state treasury to your own pocketbook. So you give it rather than giving it to the states to use it, have it, might use it in ed education. And so when, when are you announcing your candidacy for governor? When is that happening? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've given that my best shot, and um, that, you know, I actually sought election. I was appointed to the Supreme Court, served there for two and a half years, and then in a weaker moment actually sought uh, election for a full term by the vote of the people, and um, the people uh, very courteously said, Nables, old buddy, go home. <laughs> Well, that, well that, but that's where the rubber meets of, of, of God speaking through those things, even when he says what you don't necessarily want to hear. But uh, grateful for you and your witness well, uh, in you. this world. Uh, uh, questions for Drayton Neighbors? All right, oh, I'm going to need that remote. remote. I'm not Listen sure it's to. working. I don't know. I hello, don't think hello, want. hello. This isn't on. This, I, I, okay, it's been a bad day for electronics at the end, but this doesn't work, so it doesn't matter. Okay. I'll repeat the question. What, what is the process for enrollment at Cornerstone? First criteria, you got to be poor. <laughs> the only, in terms of competence, the only question we ask is, can this child learn? Uh, we, if the child can learn, the child can be two, three grades behind. Uh, we'll take them because we think we can catch them up. Um, got to be poor. You cannot have a learning disability. 
A third important qualification is did your parents get you to school last year? So if the child has a number of absentees or uh, 30 or 40 tardinesses, we said, how can we teach this kid if the kid isn't going to show up? So we don't cherry pick in any way relating to ability or intelligence. Um, we want the poor children. Who can you invest in is the idea. It's an idea of investment rather than... Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yes. Um, You, you stated that uh, leadership is far more effective than verbal teaching. How do you teach your teachers? Mm. Leadership uh, and watch example being more effective than verbal teaching, uh, but how do you pick your teachers? Now, that's, that's a good question, and it is so related to poverty uh, because we don't pick our parents. Um, and uh, the Lord gave me really good parents. Uh, probably gave almost everybody in this room really good parents. That is such a blessing. Um, and um, we really don't pick our schools. We are assigned to our schools. So if our schools have teachers that will not be good examples to us for any one of a number of reasons, that's a challenge in the Birmingham school. So the children don't pick their teachers. I mean, it's, it's a matter of grace. It really is, which is the reason we think we've got to Try, uh, try so hard to put in the inner city good examples. Now, the first question asked of a teacher, we're talking about how, would, how do we select um, students, how do we select teachers, first question, give us your testimony. And if that teacher uh, does not have a deep faith in Jesus Christ, we don't ask the second question, we find somebody else. Tandy? said, very well said. David. Our uh, president-elect is selected as secretary of education and both of them seem intent on making major changes. Is it possible without Christ to make Is it with the, with the change in administration and a possible major shift in education policy, uh, what hope is there in the public school system if, if they're not Christian? Is that what you're asking? Or if they're not Christ-centered changes? More or less. I mean, yeah. First, the appointment. Because um, we, all, we all went to, most of us went to schools that weren't Christ-centered just because of what's happening. But fortunately, so many of us grew up in families that were Christ-centered, mm -hmm. um, as did I. Just didn't take until I was 37. That's what it was. Um, uh, the appointment that, is, uh, that the president-elect has made for education secretary is a very good appointment. I can't, I can't tell you. If she's from Michigan. She's a very, very wealthy lady, and she is um, devoted, committed to alternatives to public education, Cornerstone being one of those, charter schools being another alternative. So that was a very good choice. Uh, apart from the spiritual dimension, what can the federal government do? Um, we all know that public education, especially 
um, at elementary and secondary levels is a state deal. It's not a federal deal now. The uh, federal government gives some money to the public schools relating to the uh, lunch, lunch program, uh, uh, breakfast and lunch programs, but very little other uh, help from the federal government. So you can have the best of intentions in Washington, and it's very difficult for those uh, intentions to take root in the state. So uh, you can't do it too well in Washington, which is not real good news for us, because in Birmingham, we need some help from outside uh, in terms of our governance. The spiritual dimension is absolutely essential to any life that is to flourish in, in, in joy and peace um, uh, and even in effective work. Um, and I'm not going to say that public schools without Christ cannot have a profoundly positive influence on a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, you're just working from a real handicap. Or put it this way, you're given an enormous advantage um, if you can study the Bible <clears throat> in school as we do every day at Cornerstone. Um, on Wednesdays, we actually have a worship service every Wednesday at Cornerstone. And we've got crosses just all over. If any of you have any crosses in your attic that you're not using them, please give them to me. I'm serious. Because we can't get enough crosses in the classrooms. Um, and so hopefully thinking like Jesus Christ will just be natural for these kids and what an advantage that is. Yeah, I think too is that, you know, it, it's, we shouldn't expect the public school system to evangelize our children. I mean, that's our job. And so investing in parents is, is really important. And I think that that's one of the great things about the youth ministry here at the Advent is the emphasis on, on equipping parents to, uh, to be able to withstand even the sort of passive, um, uh, the passive objections to people of faith that, that are made manifest in the public school system. But, uh, Grayton, very grateful for you. Lauren, you, you always get the last word. Go ahead. <laughs> Almost start with one. Uh, well, if I just could give you one, it would be hope. Mm. Um, we can't be wise if we don't have hope. Now, just say we're 16 or 17 years old, we're female, and having a baby sort of looks like fun, or I mean, something nice. It's, everybody else does it. If you have hope that if you stick to your knitting in high school and go to college, 10 or 15 years from now, your life will be much, much better than your mother's life was. You'll say, let's don't have a baby. But if you have no hope, if 15 years from now, it's not going to be any better than it is now, why don't you have a baby? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Why don't you do drugs? Uh, why don't you rob the local store? Uh, so, and, and the hope that Christ can give these youngsters is just priceless. If you've got Lord Jesus on your side, that's going to lead you through life and help you face all the obstacles that you have out there. You've got so much better a chance of making a wise decision to defer gratification now 
so you can live a worth, life worth while leading. Mm -hmm. Hope, hope. Do you still do tutoring programs? Excuse me? Oh, yes. Tutor. We'd love for you to come out and tutor. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Great, and thank you so much. Go in peace thank to you. love and serve the Lord.